Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I mentioned last week we would be... Um, is already asleep? Already out. All right. Yeah. Okay. I mentioned last week that we would be looking at a passage this morning, which is among the more controversial in the New Testament. Uh, if you've read ahead, you will know what I'm talking about. If not, you'll find out quick. Um, it's a passage that even among those of us who are fully in agreement on the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, we still kind of find ourselves challenged by these verses. So without any delay, let's get right to them. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in the 21st verse. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be their husbands in everything. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And as we look through these verses and on, Father, in the scripture today, we ask that you would guide what is said, guide what, that is, what is heard, and guide our contemplation, Father, what we think as we process these words. Amen. So let's talk about this big, big verse. I know it's talked about a lot. It creates a lot of angst in Christian homes and conversations. A lot of believers, I think, struggle. I think the answer to resolving the controversy, if you will, or the angst, if you will, is, as usual, first seeing the text in its context, in the passage of Scripture, and in the cultural context it's set in, and then by looking at what's actually there, not what we assume is there, but what's actually there. And I think if we do that, it, it will help us. Um, so what I want to do is, as we usually do, uh, is first set the context. And in this case, it'll be a lot, little bit larger context than we're used to. And then look carefully at exactly what the Apostle Paul writes, what we have in front of us. And then we can consider the question of what it means. Now, when I say context, we normally consider you know, the verses just around it. In fact, I mentioned last week that the verses we looked at last week are essential in understanding this, and we'll get to this. But this is a case where we really have to back way off, way off, and go back to the, the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. So we're going to start there. And it's material you should be familiar with. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. And it says in verses 26 and 27, and we're doing this because we've got to get a perspective, we've got to get God's perspective on marriage first, the larger picture before we can make sense out of what Paul says in these verses. So that's, that's the reason we're doing this. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he starts off with man singular, then man, male and female, but still spoken of in the singular word man. So he's describing male and female, Adam and Eve, as a unity. Recognizing their identity, individual identity, and, and yet as a unity. He starts first as man, and then he goes to them. God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we've got both of these things going on. We've got man as a, as, a, as a unit, singular, and yet male and female. So he's working with the words both ways. And then in verse 28 and 29, he speaks of man's 
rule over the earth. And that is both of them. So at the very outset, the very outset, God describes male and female as a unit together ruling over earth. That's the job. Sub, sub, subjecting all of creation to the rule of them, Adam and Eve. There's a cooperative rule that is going on here. So that's how it starts, right? There's a task. It's given to them both. God gave the task to both, not just the male. And this is reinforced in chapter 2. And chapter 2 is not like a subsequent chapter. It's like a focusing in on the Adam and Eve issue. Because chapter 1 is all of creation. Chapter 2 zeroes in primarily on Adam and Eve. And we read this. This is in verse 18, right? The Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. The man gave names to all the cattle, all the birds, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the central concept in this description of Adam setting about the first job he was given to do is Adam's need for a helper, a helper that is suitable. And that is the word ezer. Now, full disclosure, I'm not an Old Testament guy, but I can use the resources that are out there, right? Any, any of you could do this. You can look it up. The question is, what did the text mean? What did God mean when he described Adam's need for an ezer? Right? Now, this is a translation issue. You know, we often say in translation, and the process, and it's any translation, it doesn't need to be biblical translation, you can be translating any language. We use the expression, things get lost in translation, right? We're all familiar with that idea. In other words, you have an idea in one language that's just loaded with meaning and all kinds of, you know, subtleties and all kinds of stuff. Let's say baggage in kind of a neutral sense, not a bad sense, but this word has all this baggage. And you want to translate that word into another language, well, you got to pick out what part of all that stuff is intended in the first writing or speaking, and pull just that idea into the other. And it's really hard to do that without losing something. And I think we can all understand that. Anyone that's had any experience going from one language to the knows what that's like. But there's also a second problem that we don't always recognize. We recognize the problem of losing things in translation. What we don't always recognize is the problem of adding things in translation. So when we go from easer with all all of the stuff that it has, and, and the translators say, okay, helper's a good word, and we bring it into English, we also inherit all the other stuff that the word helper means. Now, in English, when we use the word helper, and you can look it up in a dictionary, any good English dictionary, the words you're going to see are what? Assistant, associate, aid. So in our English mind, this idea of a helper definitely conveys the idea of like a number two assistant. That's just bound in the English word helper, right? Just, you know, the wingman, whatever, right? Backup, right? That is not in Ezer at all. Nowhere, anywhere in the word Ezer is that sense of a number two backup found. The word Ezer is found throughout the Old Testament. It only describes two beings. Twice it describes Eve, every other time it describes God himself. 
Every other time Ezer is used and we can identify who it's referring to, it's referring to God. So it's referring to someone who gives aid or help or assistance, but it is never referring to a subordinate. Just isn't in the word. So we need to be very careful reading our English translation. When we see helper, Adam needed a helper, help me, some translation. Adam needed someone to help him. That we don't import our English idea of a secondary person. It's a person as important as God himself in that the help is an absolute need. So Eve is described as a helper, an easer, and an easer suitable for him. And that word that is translated as suitable is a word meaning someone on the same plane. Everything about the passage, everything about the text, totally does not go the direction of any kind of a subordinate or anything other than an equal partner, or in the case of God, superior one. Everything about the text portrays Adam and Eve in an equal cooperative relationship. Everything is that way through chapter 2 of Genesis. Then we come to chapter 3, and that's where everything changes. We're in this horizontal relationship, right? Chapter 3 we have the fall. And I'm not going to go through all the verses for time's sake. You guys can read them on your own if you like. Most of us, I think, again, know the story. In the fall, Adam and Eve, disobeying what God has told them to do, there is a consequence. We call it the curse. And it starts with God first speaking to the serpent and then to Adam and Eve. Right? The point being, he speaks to Adam and Eve individually on equal terms. Now, the details of the consequences are different, but he speaks to each one as individually responsible for what they have done. In other words, he speaks to them as equals, equally responsible for what is happening, each having their own share in the consequences that will follow. Of course, in the consequences, we come up with the phrase, speaking to Eve, that man would rule over her. He shall rule over you. What did we just do? We just moved in the fall, in the consequences of the curse, from a horizontal relationship to a more vertical one. The point to be made at the outset is any vertical component in, in the marriage relationship is a product of the fall and never was God's original intent. When we get to the New Testament, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that. The point being this, that throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we're in an environment where that vertical relationship is the norm. Now, there are departures from it. There are exceptions. But, but by and large, vast majority of times, throughout the whole spectrum of the Old Testament, we have this vertical relationship in place. It's an effect of the fall. It is not God's original plan by any sense of the word. That's the situation all the way through the Old Testament. And if the only thing we had was the Old Testament, we'd be done. Thanks be to God, it isn't the only thing we have. Because we follow the Old Testament with the New Testament. And what part of the New Testament? Here's where there's an interesting observation to be made. The vast majority of things that are written in the church, things written about marriage, go from the end of the Old Testament to the epistles. What does Paul have to say about it? 
and they skip over that gospel part, you know, the part about Jesus. It's almost as if that's not relevant. It is. It's absolutely relevant because there's nothing that follows in the epistles that is not founded on what happens in the gospels. So let's take a few moments to look and see what happens in the Gospels. What happens in the Gospels about this relationship that started off horizontally, two equals, two equals working cooperatively to get a job done, but has now been twisted into something vertical. In the Gospels, Jesus consistently departs from the Old Testament norm, the norm that existed, right? First off, Jesus included women. And, and part of our struggle with this is we're so used to seeing things the way they are that we don't realize how radical they were when they happened. Jesus had women among his followers. Just examples, Matthew 27, 55. Many women were looking on from a distance. This is at the crucifixion. Who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. That was absolutely not the norm. No traveling rabbi would have women in his company. That was a given. Jesus departed from that, affirming the value of the women traveling with him, right? Jesus conversed with women openly and publicly. You know, we see that scene where, where Jesus talks with the woman of Samaria at the well, and we go, well, that's kind of odd. No, that was way past odd. That was off the wall. Isn't it interesting when, the, when in that description of that event, John's Gospel, when the, when, the, when the disciples come back from town where they had gone you know, to, buy, to buy stuff, in verse 27, they were amazed. They marveled. The text means they found it unbelievable that Jesus was talking with a Samaritan. They evidently had no problem with him talking to a Samaritan, but the fact that he was talking with a woman. What's going on here? This is un Jesus completely turns that model around. Completely turns the model around. Jesus taught women and encouraged their learning. Now, again, that doesn't sound that like earth-shattering to us, right? Because we're used to it. First century model? Absolutely not. There are some extraordinary statements in the Talmud about the idea of women learning Scripture. And again, the Talmud is written a little bit later, but it still reflects the mentality. Uh, one rabbi said the woman who studies Torah has a demon. That was the perspective. Another rabbi went so far as to say, better the Torah be burned than it be studied by a woman. So that's the perspective. That was the prevailing perspective. That's the culture in which Jesus is operating. And yet consider this event. Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. She's welcomed into the home, and he's, you all know the story, right? He's teaching away. Mary is sitting at his feet. Martha's making preparations. Martha's got her hand full, and she comes to Jesus, and what does she say? Tell Mary to help me with the preparations, right? Now, I'll be honest. I read that for the longest time and thought, well, Martha's just a jerk. She's just selfish. She wants help, right? No, actually, the deal with Martha is she is reacting out of the prevailing cultural expectations. From Martha's perspective, Mary is completely out of line. She has absolutely no business in there listening to the rabbi teach because she's not supposed to be listening to a rabbi. She's not supposed to be studying things like Torah. What's her job to do? Now, I will confess that my wife and I have a strong disagreement at this point as to the value of the film Fiddler on the Roof. 
I use the film Fiddler on the Roof as my go-to source for things Old Testament. I understand it's about 2,000 years off, but it's still really good. In the overture of Fiddler on the Roof, right, when they're talking about the traditions, he's singing the tradition song, right, that she's got a much more conservative view on how we interpret scripture, I guess is the problem, um, which is great. I appreciate it. But in that overture, the boys are seen doing two things. It's a perspective on life in a, in, a, in, a, in a Jewish village in early 20th century Russia. The boys are either working with their dads or in the school with the rabbis studying. The girls are seen what? Working with their mothers or working in the field. They are never seen with the rabbis. Again, it's, it's hard for us to embrace that idea, but it's extremely important for our understanding. Women just didn't study the things of the law. The only thing they needed to know, their mother would teach them how to keep a kosher home. That was it. So the very fact that Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him, that is radical. And we can't see that. So there's this, and what happens when Martha comes to Jesus and says, hey, Rabbi, you know, you're slipping up here. You're letting Mary listen to you when she should be in here helping me. And what does Jesus say? Martha, you're worried about so many things. Mary has chosen the better part, and what she has chosen will not be taken from her. What's he just done? He didn't so much rebuke Martha as rebuke the whole social system, rebuke the whole understanding of, of, how, of the whole gender thing. He just, no. Martha has as much right to sit there and listen to him as anybody does. Jesus treated people equally, Matthew 32, or rather, rather, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3, uh, in 32 to 35, Jesus is preaching away, his family's outside, somebody comes in and says, Rabbi, your mother and your brothers are outside, and what does Jesus say? He says, listen, look around. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother, complete equity. Jesus didn't buy into any kind of vertical stratification. In ministry, Jesus instructed, commanded, empowered women as well. John 20 is especially illustrative. Right? Again, you can read it on your own afterwards. Um, it's the morning of the crucifixion. Um, Mary runs to the tomb, finds it's empty, runs back and gets the disciples because there's somebody ripped off the body. And Peter and John run to the tomb and they see that it's empty and they leave. Peter and John were at the tomb and they left leaving Mary alone. That's when Jesus appears to Mary. Jesus appeared to Mary after Peter and John left, which means what? Well, at least the implication is that Jesus deliberately waited until Peter and John had left so that his appearance would be directly to Mary. And what does he say to her? Go tell my disciples to precede me into Galilee and wait for me. Who, was the first, who were the first ones to preach the resurrection? Wasn't the guys. They're hiding out. So Jesus empowered women in ministry. And regarding marriage itself, which brings us back to our text, there's that all too important, all important moment in Matthew chapter 19 where the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus up. And they say to, they say to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Notice the completely one single direction of the question. They didn't say, is divorce permissible for any reason? They said, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife? That's that kind of vertical assumption. All it took in the first century, divorce was not a proceeding in the first century. 
It was the guy getting out a piece of parchment and saying, woman, get thee out, and she's out the door. That's all it was. Now, she could challenge it after the fact, but it was totally the prerogative of the husband. So the, so the Pharisees come and they say, is it lawful for a man to do that any, any reason at all? That was a real hot-button topic among the Pharisees. And G, what does Jesus say? He says, go back and read what it says. And he takes them right back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. In the beginning, God took the two, made them one. And what God has brought together, not, not man, separate. So Jesus' perspective of marriage doesn't reflect the thousand, you know, thousands of years since the fall. Jesus' perspective on marriage goes back before the fall. And he speaks as if that is still the status that God wants to see in place. Now, yeah, we're under the fall. There's no two ways about it. We fee in that we feel the effects of the fall. We all die, right? But there's a huge difference between recognizing we are, we are still feeling the effects of the curse and embracing it. I mean, I can't get around the fact that I'm, I, live in a, I live in a world, I live in a decaying body. I still feel the effects of the fall in my body, but that doesn't mean I'm going to wrap my arms around it and hug it. No. I'd much rather be actively pursuing the plan for my life, not just marriage, the whole of my life, that does not reflect the fall, but reflects the fact that I am redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. That's what the Gospels teach about not just marriage but the whole of the Christian experience. So let's, let's bring it into this issue we're talking about, specifically the whole idea of, um, of the wife and the husband, as Paul describes in chapter 5. Um, let's look at exactly, exactly what's said. Um, you may wonder why in the reading this morning I started with verse 21, which said, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Because most of your Bibles, if they have, they have a paragraph break, you'll notice a paragraph break is in between 21 and 22, right? And, of course, the paragraph breaks are not in the original manuscripts. The original manuscripts were just zoop, zoop, nothing, no punctuation, all capitals. It's an adventure, right? The paragraph breaks and all that were brought in by the translators and the editors and the printers. The reason I read 21 with 22 is because 22 makes no sense without 21. If you translate verse 22 based on the best manuscripts available, the oldest manuscripts, manuscripts up until the late 3rd century, early 4th century, all of the best manuscripts, verse 22 reads this way. And I know, I mean, I'm not really trying to Greek bomb you here, drag you into all the grammar and all that, but there's no other way to deal with this. There's just no other way. And this is things we have to know. Verse 22 translated literally reads this way, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. What's missing? The verb. No verb. Doesn't have one. Sorry, it's not there. The verb is hipotasso, and it's not there. Okay, now, we do this all the time in, in, in language. We do it in English all the time. We borrow a word from another sentence, right? So where does the word come from? Well, it comes from the previous verse, 21. Verse 21 reads this way. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So the verb, which is very reasonably supplied in verse 22. You can't make sense of verse 22 without it. The verse to be subject, the verb hipotasso, is taken from verse 21 and imported to verse 22. We do that all the time in language. My favorite example, I tell one child, go clean up your room. And to the other one, your room too. They don't ask, what about my room? They know, clean it up. 
borrowed the verb from the previous sentence. Okay? We do that all the time, very common. So there's nothing unreasonable about Paul writing this way. What I would suggest is unreasonable is printing it that way and then sticking in a paragraph break. Doesn't make any sense, right? So verse 22 makes no sense without verse 21. Verse 22 is wholly dependent on verse 21. In other words, the expression in verse 22, wives, to your husbands, unto the Lord, is like a subset, if we can say that, or it's under the umbrella of being subject to one another. Well, what does it mean to be subject? Again, this is a classic example of you bring a word from one language into another, you pick a word from the second language, you get all the baggage that comes with it. Okay? Now, if you look this word up in a theological dictionary, called lexicons, if you look this up in a lexicon, you're likely to find this, that the definition of hipotasso is to, it's a military term, it means to arrange troops under a commander, which immediately does what in our minds? It moves us into this authority model, right? Here's the problem with that. I am sure that somewhere in ancient Greek it meant that. I've never found it, right? What I have found is this. We've talked about the Septuagint in the past. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the one that the rabbis did, the scholars did, so that Jews who didn't speak Hebrew could have an Old Testament to read. They could read it in Greek. The reason that document is so important to us is it shows us how Greek words were being used right up to the writing of the New Testament. It becomes like a very contemporary dictionary for us. In the writing of the Septuagint, hypotasso, this word is used 16 times. How many times is it used to describe troops being ordered under a military commander? Zero. Never. Now, it normally is used in the sense that we think of you know, being subject to something, but not always. It's a word that was actually kind of new to the language, and therefore it has this wide variety of meanings. And it's, it actually, in, in a couple of different cases, in the Septuagint, translation of the Old Testament, is used to describe the process of meditation. Now, I'm still trying to link those two ideas together, but in their minds, they did. So it's a word with a fairly wide range of, of ideas and thoughts. Make it even more complicated. We have something in Greek that we absolutely do not have in English, and I just ask you to bear with me on this, but we've got to cover it. In English, a verb can be active. Bobby hit the ball, okay? That's active. Subject does the action. We can have passive verbs. Bobby, who's still the subject of the sentence, was hit by the ball, okay? We do that in English. We do that. The downside to English is you have to add more words to make it make sense. Normally, to get over in the passive concept, you have to add the word by. Bobby was hit by the ball, okay? In Greek, you don't have to do that. You just change the end of the word. That's why the grammar is so crazy. You just change the end of the word. But they do something else in Greek we cannot do in English at all. They not only have active, Bobby hit the ball, they have, have passive, Bobby was hit by the ball. They have something called the middle, which is in the middle, right? Not translatable. The closest we come to it is applying the word middle to ideas about thinking. Because you know, when you think about something, you're the one doing it. You're also the one hearing it, right? Or anything like thinking, contemplation, meditation, those words are very frequently found in the middle. Now, ipotasso, the word we're talking about, to be subject, is one of the few words that actually has a fully functioning form in all three. There's active, to subject someone to something. There's passive, to be subject to someone. And there's a middle form. When the scribes added the word 
to make verse 22 more intelligible, wives, be subject to your husbands, they used the middle form. What were, they, what were they stressing? They were stressing the full autonomy of the wife in the act. Whatever the act is, the wife is in full autonomy. It cannot be compelled. The wife remains a fully autonomous being. So what, in effect, does it mean? Well, what it means, if you take into consideration what Jesus said in affirming the creation order of marriage in chapter 1 and chapter 2, is we are stepping back into a cooperative sense. A marriage, a Christian marriage, being a cooperative venture between two people. Neither one, and he doesn't even go into an authority model. It's a relational model talking everything about cooperation. Now, for some people, that works until you move on down in the passage and try to apply it. Okay, but what about this verse 23 thing where the husband is the head of the wife? Doesn't that, doesn't that mean it's an authority thing? Because he's the head, right. Again, we're right back to the idea of the ideas that we pulled in from English when we use a word. Doesn't head always mean authority? Unless it means this. Doesn't it always mean authority, right? Like the head of a corporation? Like the, you know, the head of a committee or something? No. Well, in English it does, but not in Greek. In Greek, it can just as easily mean something that is the source of something. In fact, if you go back a couple of chapters, in this very letter, it spoke of Jesus being the head in the sense of supply or source. Look back to chapter 4, if you will. Chapter 4, um, look at this. Um, verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, but carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, even the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Christ is the head of the body. Or as one third century scholar put it, Christ the head is the source of health in the body. That was Chrysostomos. No feminist. But he recognized what's being talked about in the Ephesian letter is relational, not authoritative. In fact, when it was suggested to Chrysostomos that it might be an authority model, Chrysostomo's reaction was, who would think such a thing? Because of its implications for Chrysostomo's understanding of who that, who that made Jesus into. We can go into that in the future sometime. Even more illustrative is Clement of Alexandria, another early church father writing in the, in the second, third century, another non-feminist, right? But Clement described, Clement described the headship in the marriage as this, as two generals who have to cooperate or the army can't function. So if you want to go that direction, if you want to use a military model or if you want to use an authority model, you go back to the second century and one of the most conservative of the church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, said, it's not one general with an aide-de-camp. It's two generals working collectively leading the family forward. So when we read this passage in light of what Jesus says in the Gospels, in light of the way the text is actually constructed, I think we come up with a lot different picture than our normal English understanding of these words might lead us to. That's not, that's not the fault of translation. Translation is an art. 
And we have marvelous translations. And our translators over the centuries have done an incredible job. There's nothing else of antiquity that even comes close. But we need to be mindful that especially when we're speaking to people and their lives, and we're telling people how they should live their lives, or we're at least suggesting to them how they should live their lives, we need to be very careful in what we're saying. And we need to be extremely mindful, right? This is really all about Jesus and his church. That's how Paul ends the chapter. But the message for us as husband and wives, and for those who are not yet but may be contemplating it in the future, is to live in cooperation, to live in community, working together to accomplish that which God has given us to do. And that is, as in the rest of the Ephesian letter, to manifest his character. And I would suggest that nothing in all of human creation, save perhaps the church itself, nothing else, like in a godly Christian marriage where two people are working in loving cooperation. One scholar went so far as to suggest ipotasum, to submit, was nothing more than a synonym for love. That took me some time to contemplate. Two people, husband and wife, in cooperative loving, in a cooperative loving venture, is what Paul has talked about throughout the Ephesian letter, a manifestation of the character of Christ to the world. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, um, our insistence, our insistence on living according to the, the dictates and the instructions of your word. Father, that's an anchor that we hold on to, Father. But this morning, we have to acknowledge that that task may sometimes uh, require us to make a little more effort than usual to really get to what you're talking to us about. Father, I think in a, in a very real sense that what we're talking about here is just that, common sense. And yet, Lord, um, our, our, our standard isn't our common sense. Our standard is your word. And so I pray, Father, as we look to your word this morning, You'd give us wisdom. You'd give us direction. Father, I pray that for those that may still be processing all this, Father, uh, that process would, in, would include a turning back to the Word of God, a turning back to the text, asking, what does God say about it? Father, we know there's a lot more to be said about this. We pray we'd be found faithful to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. And as you do, we covered a lot of stuff this morning, right? And a lot of it is... Maybe different than what you've been taught or heard before. Please always feel free to come to me and say, Pastor John, to call me up and say, uh, what you said, I didn't get it. Or I, did, I can't buy it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that too, right? All right, let's worship the Lord this morning.